to see beyond the words on a page, to see images, pictures. It's a great relaxation tool. And it's also gives you the ability to go deeper with your breath into that emotional wellspring that we have been taught to sit on, to suck up. Because when we start breathing deeply, we start going to that place where our emotions are stored, where our emotional life is held. And as we start breathing deeply, we release them. We release the emotions. I keep several boxes of tissues in my office because I tell people this is not therapy, but it darn sure is therapeutic. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, voice coach to Hollywood's A-listers, Denise Woods, on the power of voice. Breathe. First, the news. When I take on a role, Academy Award winner Mahershala Ali writes, I'm interested in the character's whole spiritual journey. How they see themselves or want to see themselves all leads back to something that impacts the mind, body, voice, and speech. I don't feel I have the capacity to do this without calling on something larger than myself. I also call on Denise Woods. Denise helped me make all those small but necessary adjustments, stripping away the vocal distractions to enable this unique character to speak his truth. Today on the show, we too call on Denise Woods, vocal coach, voice whisperer to Hollywood's A-list stars, you and me, author of the book, The Power of Voice, A Guide to Making Yourself Heard. Denise Woods, Welcome. Mm, thank you, Janice. It's such a pleasure being here with you. Hello, native New Yorker. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. The power of voice, and as I've come to realize from reading your book, what it tells actors about character, but what it tells us all players in this great human drama about life. What was the specific incident that made you know you had to write this book? It was an evening when I was watching the evening news and I saw these two African-American people, a couple, painfully describing their young black son because he had just been murdered. And that was Trayvon Martin's parents. And I sat there as the mother of an African-American male child, just feeling their pain and empathizing with them and sitting there wondering how it must feel to have a microphone shoved in your face at the darkest moment of your life and to be on full display for the world to see, for you to be able to articulate that pain. And I thought, I have to take what I know as a gift that God has gifted me to do. I have to take it out of Hollywood and bring it into mainstream. It was that moment, that singular moment. Not only was it, was it the actual moment of them giving the interview, but also thinking about them now being thrust into the public, onto the public stage of social activism. They didn't think they were going to be social activists when they, they bore that child. And now the responsibility to speak on his behalf, uh, on the behalf of all the rest of the black children that had been murdered and it's continued to be murdered. We now have just everyday people thrust into this position. And I thought I have to be of service. I have to do this. I have to bring what I enlighten actors with in terms of the ability to uh, form characters and inform characteristics through voice and speech and dialect. I wanted to tap into that for everyday people. I did not know that story, but I felt that in reading the book. Just, mm. just felt that this was about self-actualization. And let me just ask you, did you ever meet Trayvon's parents? No, 
Not at all. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I've not met the parents that are in the, the, the public sphere, uh-huh. but I have met, there's an organization, Say Her Name. I, I did a reading uh, of a play uh, that was written and all of these wonderful mothers of the young African-American women that had been murdered at the hands of police officers um, were there. And so I met the, the, the woman that I played because it was a compilation of these stories that had been recorded of, wow. of these women and their pain. And this wonderful playwright took it and made it into a play and invited the organization that these women belong to, to be there for this reading. And I had already started writing the book by this time. Mm. And a friend of mine knew that I was writing the book and knew what precipitated the book. And that's when she invited me to be a part of the celebration of these women, these mothers mothers. that were left with with this pain uh, 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 and and the legacy of their, their daughters. It was all about their daughters and the mothers. But yes, it's so intuitive for you to know that there was a catalytic event. It was a combustive kind of energetic clobber on the head, if you will. Yeah. So what was the first thing you did? <laughs> well, I wrote an overview of the book. I wrote an overview of my story. And then I put it up for four years oh. because as we do, we get in our heads and we say, you can't write that book. You're not a writer. You don't know how to write a book. Yeah, you've written a couple of articles, but you can't write a book. And who wants to hear about voice anyway? And it took four years for me to get it out. And I'm going to tell you what got it out because again, these are catalytic events that things that just keep happening that you know, that you've got to do this. I was watching the 2017, I think it was 2017 Golden Globes. That was the year that all of the women came in black in homage to the Me Too movement. And so I thought, I'm going to watch this one. I usually don't watch award shows for for personal reasons of being in the industry and seeing behind the the scenes. Uh, I really don't have the fascination. The fascination is blown for me. Someone has pulled back the curtain and- (laughs) Pay all attention to that woman, those people behind the curtain. You know who those people behind the curtain are. (laughs) And so I, you know, where I once used to be enamored of what people were wearing and walking the red carpet, it doesn't hold a fascination for me anymore because I work in the industry. But this particular one, I said, there are going to be some amazing speeches. I'm, I'm sure of that. I'm sure I'll be inspired. And so I was by Oprah Winfrey's speech. And she basically, it was a call to action. She was imploring the women in the audience and in the television audience. She said, there's somebody out there. There's a woman right now sitting out there that has a story that needs to be told. And I'm sitting there crying, 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 because I know I'm sitting on a story that needs to be told. And finally, I got up and I called the ghostwriter, the name, the person who had given me the name of a ghostwriter, because four years prior, when I wrote the, the overview, I called my friend, uh, who is Common's manager, mm-hmm. and asked her, who did Common use to write his book? He had just published his first book. And she gave me the name, and I tucked it away and said, you can't write a book. Tucked it away for four years until that Oprah Winfrey speech. And then I emailed her and she read the overview. She said, this is lovely. Do you mind if I send this to my agent? That was Sunday. Her agent gets back to me on Monday and said, this is wonderful. But more importantly, I know an agent who's looking for this book. I was at a cocktail party six months ago with my friend and he mentioned this book, that he's looking for a book like this. Do you mind if I send it to him? I said, no, please. That was Tuesday. 
<laughs> he gets back to me on Wednesday. He said, I have been looking for this book for years. This book is so necessary. By Thursday, I had an agent. He was the, the head of the literary department at Abrams Artists. And I had an agent. Just from paying attention to the universe and signs and knowing that I had to do this, but it took four years. When I look back, I realized that spirit, God, the universe was getting me ready in these four years because I then had four years worth of clients' stories to put in the book because it wasn't, it's not just my narrative. It's not just my memoir. It's, it's, it's the narrative of stars, oh. of everyday people, of CEOs, of professional athletes. And, and so I had that four year period, which I didn't realize I was being prepared for the book over that period of time, sort of uh, a gestation period, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And when you say it's for stars, it's for athletes, it's, you know, I mean, basically what that boils down to is that it's just for other hardworking people who just happen to have a good job. <laughs> better go girl. You better go. That's exactly how I see them. Exactly. That's exactly how, and that's the reason why they have become my friends because we are of the same ilk, meaning we're very hardworking. We're gifted. We work our butts off. We have a wonderful sense of empathy and we're humanitarians. You know, that's the, you know, the through line. We don't leave a single stone unturned. We always are asking why. We're digging further. We never accept no for an answer. And so I see all of these wonderful attributes in all of my clients who become friends. Like you said, they're just certain people that are more you know, acknowledged by the-, the Exactly. They've been fortunate enough to be gifted with being able to use their gifts in a productive way. Absolutely. So, and- Unfortunately, far too many people's lives are squandered, especially in this society, by all of our isms. So they're not able to use them, but they're just hardworking people yes. with a great job. Yes. And, um, and, and they know some it. People, <laughs> and, and some people and don't want it. that spotlight. Some people are, you know, their platform and their gifts and their blessings, they are happy where they are. It's, I've, I've, I've looked at both sides of the equation, you know, and it's not something that we, we although uh, society says we should, but it's not something that we should all aspire to, fame and fortune. Oh. You know, it, it, because it has its it has its its drawbacks, its liabilities as well. Well, you know that goes back to Dr. King's you know speech about how if you, which he was doing to the sanitation workers, yes. but I'm sure he yes. he did it to all the people, especially at that time, given the jobs into which black people were pigeonholed and, and then kept. But, you know, if you can be, if you're a ditch digger, be the best ditch digger uh, you can be. But it's also that the idea that everybody should want to be rich and famous. I mean, everybody really wants to be respected and appreciated because even if we were all PhDs, even if we were all A-listers, someone still has to clean the streets and that person need, deserves our respect. Absolutely. As, and, as well. and basically what I'm saying is that voice matters too. Yes, exactly. That so needs to be heard too. So let's start because your inspiration was that voice. It it was the voice of, of people who never thought that they would be thrust yes. into the spotlight. So where do you start? How do you get all of us to know that no matter how we exercise our voice. And I'll tell you one quick story about something that I learned about voice. Um, my mother was a brilliant, brilliant woman and she was a master educator. But at a certain point she had a brain aneurysm. Then she had a second. And thank goodness through phenomenal doctors she started coming back. But at a certain point um, it started unraveling. And one of the ways that I noticed what was actually going on is that she had like, 
it, it was called organic dementia, but she had a cycle where she might ask a question. And then at first it might be an hour later that she'd come back and ask exactly the same question as though she'd never asked it before. After a while, it came mm. down to about a 12 minute cycle. And then it was even lower than that. But what I learned about voice from that is that every, the, the confluence of voice and personality, voice and character, mm. is that every time she came back and asked that question, she'd say it in the exact same way what? with the exact same inflection. I thought of that reading your book. I began to understand not only the importance of voice, but how personal voice yes. is and how indicative it is. Yes, here's Mahershala Ali building a character, but we each have to build our characters in, in different ways. You know, so I want to ask you it from that everyday person's point of view and from that understanding as to what our voices and what we say and how we express ourselves really do say about us? Well, first of all, let's just sort of dissect uh, where we start. And we start with our authentic selves. And so that really is the basis of it, because we are told um, that we're not enough, our voices sound this, all of the negative stereotypes of voice, if, if, particularly for marginalized people, uh, people of color, women, transgender, uh, uh, LGBTQ, I mean, it, we've got to start with a sense of authenticity and owning that sense because we are multi-hyphenated, multifaceted people. And I, I contend that it's all good, that if there are quirks that don't further the narrative, then of course we want to adjust them. If there's a speech impediment or something that impedes the narrative, of course you want to make adjustments. But in terms of who you are and where you're from and, 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 and your backstory, it, it's like your fingerprints. There are, no two, there are no two sets of fingerprints that are the same. There are no two voices that are the same. Mm -hmm. And so the way your mother said that the, the, the same way, that was her voice print. That was her voice print. That was her sort of stake in the sand, stake in the earth saying, this is me, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And so it is imperative for us to start there. Uh, this is who I am. I want to be intentional about putting who I am into the world, not just how I'm visually seen, but how I am heard as well. I say that people, people put a lot of emphasis on how they look, how we look, how we present ourselves. I also contend that the emphasis should be on how we present ourselves vocally, how we sound. I want to sound like I'm a trained actress. I want to sound like I'm a black woman who grew up in New York from the Black Baptist Church. You know, I want, I because I'm all of these. I want to sound like I studied classical theater and, and opera at Lincoln Center. I want to sound like I'm the youngest child, you know, of, of <laughs> you know, in the family structure. Uh, it's all of who I am and I own it. I embrace it. And I want to put it all together in a pot and, and, and just let it unfold when you say for marginalized people who we are told that we're not even supposed to have a voice, exactly. you have a wonderful way that you actually begin this book with a quote from Toni Morrison that just seems so fitting at this point. Yes. Would you read that for us? Absolutely. Well, the introduction, the title of the introduction is Between Two Worlds. And I start with this beautiful Toni Morrison quote. Freeing yourself was one thing. Claiming ownership of that freed self was another. Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison. And then I go on, I'm just going to read the first short paragraph of the introduction. 
I am an African-American woman born and raised in Manhattan's Lower East Side housing projects during the 60s and 70s by a single working mother. But the typecasting ends there. When we come back, more with our guest, Denise Woods, author of the new book, The Power of Voice, A Guide to Making Yourself Heard, after the break. here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest today, Denise Wood. She is a vocal coach, voice whisperer, and her book is The Power of Voice, A Guide to Making Yourself Heard. Denise, who was the first person who told you you had a voice? My mother. My mother. Um, my father passed away when I was five. And my mother was only 27. And my father fought in World War II, died of lymphoma, and he, at a very young age, uh, 33. And if he were um, alive today, he probably would have survived. But because it was the early 60s and medicine being what it was and technology being what it was, he did not survive. And so my mother is left at 27. Uh, with these two little girls that she kept in church and in the arts, because I grew up on the Lower East Side. You know, that was of Manhattan. of Manhattan, of Manhattan, and which is now the trendy East Village. And, <laughs> but that's Why where <laughs> arts, there was an arts community down there where the Henry Street Settlement was, where the Third Street Music School was, Joseph Papp's Public Theater, the, it, it was it was this wonderful um, La Mama, La Mama, the Black Arts Arts uh, Movement. NEC, not far away, yes. walking distance. That's right, and Negro we, Ensemble Company, the Negro Ensemble Company, uh, in walking distance. It was right there in my backyard. And then we grew up to, in church in Harlem. So I had these two wonderful worlds of of culture. Black culture, artistic culture, and my family owned Sylvia's Restaurant in Harlem, which is is this wonderful, famous, um, iconic spot <laughs> in Harlem, a staple of the Harlem community. Sylvia Woods. Sylvia Woods. And so I had these two women, my mom, Mary Evelyn Woods and Sylvia Presley Woods, that really showed me what a black female voice could be and could sound like. Because whatever I said I wanted, my mother always found the way to make it happen. She found the money, she found the resources, and then she would take me herself and sit out and wait for me to come home. <laughs> and she she would, you know, just be there every, and encouraging every harebrained scheme that I had. And at the time she, we thought it was harebrained scheme, but little did she know that it was going, the trajectory was going to end up here, but she never silenced it. She encouraged it. And that's what led me here. And that's what led you here. You know, you tell your story, your, your story from childhood, and it is amazing how many intersections we really do have. My father died when I was 12. My mother was a single mother, also the same age group as your mom, raising me as her only child. But if I say to you, PA 1963, what do you say? I told you. <laughs> <laughs> so for the rest of the universe, we are talking about the High School of Performing Arts in New York City, the Fame High School, as it was at one point called, and you were a theater student? I was. Was Dr. Dyke still teaching voice and diction? Dr. Dyke had just retired when I came. <laughs> but Dr. But, but the years between you were there, she was teaching voice and diction when you were there, but yeah. she headed the department 
department. He headed the department also by the time I left, yes. Right. And, but by the um, time, and by the time I came, which was in 1975, uh, she had just retired. Oh, and my. I was in the music department. You were in the, that was my next question. What instrument did you play? My instrument is piano. When you talk about voice, my oh, voice was okay. music, but it, it was amazing because it wasn't until I was part of that school desegregation movement that I was told that I shouldn't have a voice. But all the work that this wonderful Black family did to raise these children, our family gave us voice gave us right. permission just like your mother right. and gave us the um the wherewithal to have that voice and then society began wheedling at us to take that voice away yeah. so I I absolutely understand what you're talking about and I knew that I had to say it to you that thank way PA 63 <laughs> and I'm saying thank you for sharing but I'm also saying thank you because you're class of 63, I'm class of 75, and I am such a proponent of paying homage to the shoulders upon which we stand. I mean, I was, I came along in schools by the time I came along 12 years later, mm -hmm. I, the school situation also reinforced my mother's notion that I have a voice and my voice mattered. Yeah. So my entire trajectory until I got to Juilliard, <laughs> my entire trajectory let me believe that I my voice mattered. It was important You're because of you, because of your generation. Well, I'd say, and because it, it's, it's an eternal chain. Totally. Again, you know, from 1619 before, come on now, um, thousands of years before, but from 1619 through now, it's this ongoing chain. And I will say, my aunt is one of Juilliard's first Black graduates. And what's her name? Marjorie DeLewis. She was a concert of pianist. Of course. Of course. I'm. I'm. <laughs> and she treated herself that way. Of course. <laughs> Darling, I am doing, um, I, I've, I've shelved, it, shelved it for a little bit, but I'm doing a documentary called Our Juilliard. And oh. it is, it, I am chronicling the African-American experience at Juilliard um, from- I am so happy to hear oh, that. And that's how I know, I know your aunt. I know her name. I have done research. I have done hours of research and it's so- the unsung heroes and the African-American presence at Juilliard. And then what we discovered when we went down the rabbit hole is how many were passing for white. I am so thrilled that you are doing that documentary because I, I think that we need to speak for the things that have been done to our elders, to our ancestors, yeah. what they have suffered at the hands of this pathology mm -hmm. that people are trying to renew mm -hmm. and, um, and speak to the damage done and the possibility therefore of what can be done going forward. We don't have to just dwell with the damage done. They, it was done and is being yes. done, but we can deal with what it means to move forward. That's right. That's what we're talking about. So when we come from that and someone tries to disturb that voice and take it away from us or prevent us from enriching our children's voices, where do we begin now? Your first chapter says, relax, mm. but can we? And how do we, if we should? I think it starts with listening. The ability to pause. You're a musician, you know what I'm talking about, the pause, the rest. I'm paraphrasing, but Miles Davis said that the rest is just as important as the note. Yes. If not more. Yes. And the same thing holds true in dialogue, in conversation, in discourse. 
I think if we take a moment to breathe, relax, breathe, and ingest, inhale the other person's experience, the other person's voice, the other person's ideology, even if we don't agree with it, let's just embrace it, inhale it, ingest it in the silence. Sometimes, I, I, I mean, clearly I wrote a book about the power of voice, but a lot of times I wanna talk about the power of silence the power of listening, the power of taking in and not just listening, but hearing. I think that's where it starts. We have to hear each other, not just constantly be a barrage of my thoughts, my ideas, but seeing if I can be enlightened. Um, and then and even, if, even if I look at it and realize that they are really supporting the fact that, that you're, you're um, uh, uh, ideas, philosophies are so diametrically opposed to mine, really enforces mine. It empowers me even more. It's, a, it's, not, it's not just the reflection of like minds that empower you. It really can be empowering when someone disagrees with you. It makes your idea even more broad, brighter. Uh, and, and so, but you can only get that in the silence. You can only get that when you hear, when you listen. There's a section in the book that I talk about this because I really believe in it wholeheartedly. Sadly, we rarely have two-sided conversations in this country. No one is listening or taking in the other viewpoint. No one is taking a breath. We all are so exhausted from our own diatribes that we can't even hear other people anymore. But can you imagine the benefits to our relationships and careers if we discover this lost art? Matching our vocal skills to the authentic personality, truly being heard and understood because we invited others to do the same? I love that, but I wanna push back on it and ask you this question. What about the voices, like the voices of January 6th? Do we really need to hear those voices? I think we do. Why? I think because now it's on full display. Now we see it. It's, it's it, you, you know, people didn't realize. I had a, 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 a Japanese woman, we were talking in the grocery store and she started crying. She just wanted to talk to me after George Floyd's death. And she said in her, in her English, it, it with really tinged with beautiful Japanese dialect. And she, she said, you know, she said, she's grabbing my arm and she's crying. She said, when he called his mama, when he called his mama, when he called his mama, that's when I couldn't take it no more. He called his mama. So the reason, everybody on full display, thank God for that young woman who pulled out her camera, had the presence of mind to pull out her camera. You know, thank God of, you know, what, what changed the world when we actually saw the footage of JFK being assassinated and Jackie climbing up on the that's, car. That's I mean, my era, indelible. I was five and I remember that was the first time I ever saw my mother cry. I'd never seen my mother cry before. And, my, and it was probably because my father had passed away yes. that same year. And it was, it just, and she, and she held that from us. But that moment she couldn't hold it from us. And so me seeing those images of, of those marauders, those insurgents uh, on that day, trying to storm the Capitol, it allowed people, the naysayers, because we all knew people of color, we knew what they were capable of. And we also knew that there was a double standard with the gatekeepers because had they been black, it would have been a completely different narrative. And we know this. And now the world knows that. The world saw that, why, why aren't the police doing anything? Why are they standing there? Mm -hmm. When 
months, weeks before they saw the police officers open up on the Black Lives Matter protesters peacefully protesting so that the, 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 the president could have a photo op near the church. Yes. And so when we see this, I think it's important for us to see it all, to lay it all bare for all voices so that we can get for all voices to be heard, for all voices to be spoken so that we get a full picture of the landscape. We come from generations, your parents, my parents, my grandparents, your grandparents, they didn't talk about stuff. They wouldn't, they couldn't, they just had to be about it. They didn't talk about it, they had to be about it. And we are finding my generation, and I just mentored a young actress the other day, yesterday, a young actress who her mentor is a very accomplished person in the industry. And she said, you need, you need some voice lessons. You need, you need some acting classes. And I listened to her and I said, you don't need a voice class. You don't need an acting class. You need to sh shift your energy. Your energy is so angry right now. You are bringing that into your work. You're bringing all of that. And so your work is, is not nuanced. Your work doesn't have layers. It's because you're blocking. You, I said, I think you need to do some energy work. Yes. I think you need to unblock your chakras. I think you need, now, clearly if I had told my mama that, or my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> they would have heard shock, not the rock part. <laughs> They clearly would have said, you've been in California too long, baby. Come on back home. <laughs> but it's, 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 this, it's this ability to unblock, to speak, to speak your truth, to be okay with your truth, as opposed to saying, why are you telling my business? Why are you putting our family stuff out there? Why are you sharing that with the neighbor? Because it unlocks, it unleashes. And my huge reason for doing this book is not to unlock and unleash my story and other stories, but it's to encourage and inspire others to do the same. When we come back, more with our guest, Denise Wood. She is author of the new book, The Power of Voice, A Guide to Making Yourself Heard. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest today, Denise Wood. She is the author of the new book, The Power of Voice, A Guide to Making Yourself Heard. And as we've been talking about the book, it, it's become clear that this is, yes, a masterful book about voice, about being heard, about the techniques that she has used as a voice coach for actors, for people who have to use their voices professionally, but it's also about certain life lessons. So Denise, when we began this interview, you said that the, the defining moment that told you you would write this book was watching Trayvon Martin's parents having to use their voice for a reason no mm -hmm. one would ever want. On, on a day that had to have been their worst day. Now mm -hmm. we know that in that kind of incident, um, no one is relaxed, but we can train ourselves through life experience to manage a range of situations, I gather. Absolutely, absolutely. It's the power of the imagination, utilizing the imagination. When we are in a very, stressful situations and God knows several of us have been in that situation this entire year. If, if COVID hasn't affected us, and I can't imagine who it hasn't affected, but if it hasn't affected our immediate family, we all know of families who are really, really struggling. And if we're empathetic people, we are grieving collectively as a nation, as a world with people who have lost so much. Uh, loved ones, businesses, 
homes, so much is being lost. And so how do you relax in a situation where everything around you is in utter chaos and upheaval? The power of the imagination, it, it's, it's, it's huge. I am on the audition tour for Juilliard and people ask me, how do we choose 20 people out of the thousand kids that audition? And this is what I say. It's the kid that utilizes their imagination in a childlike way. How to utilize your imagination when there are no rules. You can color outside, the, outside of the lines. You can get into the sandbox and play and there are no rules. We start getting rules as we get older. And what happens is when the rules come, we stop relaxing and we stop breathing. We are taught boys don't cry. Put your big girl pants on, suck it up, go in there and don't never let them see you sweat. And so when that happens, we stop breathing. And when we stop breathing, the sheer force of holding in the breath creates tension in and of itself. And so how do we breathe? How do we release the tension? The power of the imagination. I like to tell people, I just want you to, I'm just going to use, I'm going to give you a word, B-L-U-E, B-L-U-E. And I do this exercise in, in, in my, with my graduate students. And I just write B-L-U-E on a page and I go around and just show it to them. And they don't, I say just the first thing that comes to your mind, first thing that comes to your mind, first thing that, around. And then I come back and I go around the circle and I ask what came to mind. And some will say a blue sky. Denise, the blue shirt that you have on, um, an ocean. And invariably one or two kids will say, I just saw the letters B-L-U-E. And so that's when, when I introduce the ability to see beyond the letters, to see beyond the words on a page, to see images, pictures, really seeing pictures allow us to relax. It's a great relaxation tool. And it's also gives you the ability to go deeper with your breath into that emotional wellspring that we have been taught to sit on, to suck up. Because when we start breathing deeply, we start going to that place where our emotions are stored, where our emotional life is held. And as we start breathing deeply, we release them. We release the emotions. I, I, I keep several boxes of tissues in my office because I tell people this is not therapy, but it darn sure is therapeutic. When we just start breathing and releasing and letting it go and then releasing the voice on the breath, that's where the voice starts is from the relaxed instrument to the breath. And then we release the voice on the breath and then we shape that voice with the articulators to articulate words and sounds of words, vowel sounds, diphthong sounds, consonant sounds, affricates and, and, and fricatives and stop plosives and all of these wonderful sounds of speech that create an idea. And then once we've relaxed ourselves, relaxed the instrument, we start breathing more deeply, we release the, the voice on the breath, and then we shape the voice with the articulators to create words now, sounds of speech. Then what we have to do is we have to communicate those sounds of speech because we don't speak individual words. As you know, as a musician, you don't play individual notes. You phrase groups of notes. We, we put together groups of words and within the phrase, there's one word that's more important than the other. And those usually are verbs and nouns because the nouns tell you what the story is and the verbs give you the action. And so those are the five principles upon which I craft this technique and upon which my book is written. Relaxation, breath, voice, articulation, and communication. We, two African-American women, are having this conversation. And for some, it is the year of Black women because of the work that was done to bring Kamala Harris 
to the vice presidency and Joe Biden to the presidency without question. It is also for many people the call to action to put us down, to put us back in a place that they feel comfortable in seeing us in, but it is not a place we will choose to, to return to. So the question becomes, what do we do with that? How do we use this voice now for action, for activism? We need to rely on each other. Now is the time where the collective voice, as opposed to the individual voice, um, is, is, is so necessary. Meaning, I empower individual voices. I empower you to step to the, to the fore and speak your truth. But I also empower women, black women, women of color to stand behind the sisters that are out there already and give them that energy, that support, um, the Tamika Mallory's, the young activists, um, the, the, the sisters that are on the front line like the Stacey Abrams. What they need is our collective energy and our collective voices in support of them. Sometimes when we have too many cooks in the kitchen, when we have, um, and not to say that, that every voice is not important. I just think that we need a collective energy, a collective source where we're all on the same, on the same um, frequency, even if we don't agree, but the frequency is there. And so the strength, in the numbers is palpable and rich. And that doesn't only mean African-American female voices. I just think the female voice in all areas like Hollywood, in CEOs of companies, I think that the, these voices, we need to unite and support each other in the movement so that it becomes this collective. It becomes a collective energy. Uh, I think that's how we move forward. That's how we move forward. In the book, you have a, a wonderful uh, section that I would love for you to read um, in which you talk about how we present to and how we get to engage with strangers, mm. how we cross the divide. Would you read that for us, Testing mm -hmm. the Waters? Absolutely. Most people have filters. We don't share our whole authentic selves with others until we get to know them well. And even then it can be hard to get to let our guard down. But there are always ways to slowly invite listeners in, giving them a glimpse of our true selves and infusing our communication with a kind of authenticity that leaves a lasting impression. Start by selecting a story about yourself that few people know. Something from your childhood, perhaps, to give your audience a glimpse of your inner light. For instance, I always ask people I'm meeting for the first time, either at a party or an informal business gathering, where they went to high school. That period of one's life is invariably filled with angst, triumphs, and everything in between. It has been an ideal conversation starter for me, particularly because I went to the High School of Performing Arts and I'm usually surrounded by math, science and business people. If the room happens to be filled with other artists, all the better. I typically share how finding my artistic voice and village raised my confidence and ultimately raised all of my grades. I had no idea that I was gifted in math until I discovered my love for drama. Anyone can relate to my story because at the end of the day, we all just want to fit in, particularly during our high school years. And we want to just fit in for our entire lives. That is the journey. Absolutely. Trying to find connection and fitting in. Your book, The Power of Voice, 
a guide to making yourself heard. And I love the fact that you said that the power of making yourself heard has a lot to do with the power of how we listen. Yeah. So your takeaway for today? I think it really is the collective power of a unified voice. Um, And a unified voice doesn't necessarily mean that we all agree, but we agree to disagree. And we agree that we wanna get from point A to point B. And my sister over here might think it's, it should be done in this particular way. And the sister over there thinks it should be done in another way, but the collective energy, the collective voice is really more powerful than the singular voice. And when we learn to use the strength of our, um, our individual voices and put them together and work together collectively, we will find that we will get further along in this process. We just go from here. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Janice. My thanks to Denise Woods and to you for joining us today on The Janice Adams Show. For the podcast and for more information about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Mm-hmm.